So people let me know very candidly that they didn't really want me around and they didn't think I'd amount to much. So with that as a backdrop, it's like, okay, if I just do what everybody else does, I'm probably not going to get what I want. So I had to figure out how do I improve my odds? Welcome to episode 11, Unapologetically Ambitious. Welcome, welcome everyone. Liv, this week we talk about being unapologetically ambitious. When Kamala Harris was being considered as a vice presidential candidate, she was deemed overly ambitious by many, a reminder of the enduring double bind of women and ambition. You know, Liv, an ambitious man is a go-getter while an ambitious woman is off-putting. That's so true. And to me, it seems that our society likes to tell little girls that they can do anything, but then tells women that they really can't. Yep. Outspoken and accomplished women are often criticized for their ambition because movements thrive on women behind the scenes who defer to male leaders. The fact is, from abolition to civil rights to Black Lives Matter, groups flourish only through women's organizational efforts. That's so true. And thank goodness for trailblazing women like Vice President Kamala Harris, who are willing to challenge these norms. Gen Z leaders like myself are right behind her, ready to lead. You certainly are. And Gen Z gives me hope, which is why this episode is so timely. Our conversation with Shelley Archambault provides a roadmap for young women to embrace being unapologetically ambitious. And FYI, Liv, Nana called me that when I was <laughs> your age, and I wore it as a badge of honor. I believe it. And so let's get to it. Shelly Archambault is the former CEO of Metric Stream, where she was one of Silicon Valley's first Black female CEOs and built the company from a struggling startup to a global leader. She now serves on several boards, including Verizon, Nordstrom, and Roper Technologies, and she is the author of Unapologetically Ambitious. I love this title, and I devoured this book as it captures so much of what we strive to teach young women through Live Girl. We're excited to share our conversation with you. So welcome, welcome, Shelly. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this. We have so much to learn from you. So let's dive right in. Um, first, can you just start and tell us a little bit about your personal leadership journey? Oh, goodness. So <laughs> um, you almost have to start a little bit at the beginning to understand what shaped me. Uh, I realized early that the odds, frankly, weren't in my favor. I uh, grew up in elementary school in the 60s, which was a very racially charged time. And for as many people that wanted civil rights, you had just as many that didn't. So people let me know very candidly that they didn't really want me around and they didn't think I'd amount to much. So with that as a backdrop, it's like, okay, if I just do what everybody else does, I'm probably not going to get what I want. So I had to figure out how do I improve my odds? And literally, I've spent my whole life focused on how do I improve the odds to actually get what I want out of life? And that's made me very intentional about what I do. I set goals and go after goals. So fast forward, I'm in high school, meeting with the guidance counselor, your junior year, you will all, if you haven't had it, you will all have that conversation, which is what do you want to do? Are you going to college? What do you want to do after college? And in that conversation, I said, yes, college, I have no idea what I want to do. And she said, what do you like to do? And I said, oh, that's easy, clubs. 
I'm in all the different organizations, American Field Service, National Honor Society, the Key Club, Girl Scouts, I mean, you name it. More than that, I liked leading them. And she said, well, business and clubs are kind of the same thing. Pull people together to get stuff done. And I said, done, then I wanna run a business. And when I looked up, the people that ran businesses were called CEOs. So I said, that's it, I wanna be a CEO. Now, did I have any idea what that meant? No, no, I didn't know what that actually meant, but I now had a goal. And so I literally spent my career figuring out, okay, if I wanna be CEO, what has to be true? And then that's doing the research, right? So what made people CEOs? What were their backgrounds? Where did they go to school? What jobs did they have, right? All those kinds of things. And then I said, all right, now I understand what you have to do. How do I make it true? Which is my plan. And I put plans in place to try to basically make all those things come true. And the good news is it works. So I started my career at IBM, started out in sales because that's where every CEO at IBM started. So I figured that had to be the path to power. That's how you find the current. And I rose through the ranks for 14 years, actually did very well. I got to the point where I was running multi-billion dollar divisions. My boss worked for the CEO um, and there was no one higher than me in the company that looked like me. So I had done really well. It wasn't clear I was going to actually become CEO. And that was the goal. So I made the tough decision to leave, worked my way to Silicon Valley, where after being the chief marketing officer and EVP of sales of two public companies, I finally got the opportunity to become CEO of a very broken company, but fixed it, turned it around, and turned it into a market leader over the course of being CEO for 15 years, passed the baton, and now I serve on boards, as you heard from Sherry. I advise companies, and I took the time to write the book. You make it sound so easy, but there, yeah. and, there's, and there's so much there. I mean, I love the intention and the preparedness and everything you talked about being so purposeful about improving your odds and taking risks, leaving IBM when you were, you were, you know, in had achieved great success at IBM, but you took the risk to leave and just try something new. So there's so much to learn. And and that is quite a personal leadership journey, one that we can all learn from. So tell us more about like what it was like being a CEO in Silicon Valley um, at that time and kind of what was the most important leadership lesson you learned from, from that experience? Huh. Well, I'll be candid. I'm not from the Valley, right? So I get to Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley, I mean, my goodness, it's innovative, all the latest things are happening there, right? It's young, it's dynamic, right? Silicon Valley. So I just knew it had to be diverse. Not, not. We talk about it not being diverse now. 20 years ago, it was significantly worse. Um, so here I am kind of fish out of the water. I don't look like the normal CEO of a tech company in Silicon Valley. And, you know, what I did though is what I always do. And that is, I know that when I walk in the room, when I take a new job, when I take over a new group, whatever it might be, that people are gonna underestimate me. They're gonna assume I'm there for reasons other than my capability, right? That's the way it is, life's not fair, it's just what it is. So I don't worry about that or dwell on that, but it has shaped my leadership approach. So what I do is I'm a servant leader. I focus on how to help my team be successful. Because if my team's successful, then I'll be successful. And more than that, if the team knows that I really care about their success, then they're going to develop trust in me. And they're going to care right back. So it also enables you to develop, I think, very strong business relationships. So that is the leadership style 
that I've always used. And it's what I did when I got to Silicon Valley. I also worked on building a network, which is people outside of the company that could be helpful, um, that could give me advice, right? Perspective, et cetera, because I'm not from the Valley. So I've got to figure out how I, how I go get this help and this information. And by the way, while I'm talking about this, Sherry, if you don't mind, just one key message here, asking for help, whether it's in school, in business, in the community, asking for help is a strength. It's not a weakness. Most people I've found want to be helpful if asked in the right way. So let them help you. Ask for help. Life is hard. All right. You just heard me give you in two minutes my trajectory. All right. Well, if you read the book, you'll know my life was hard. All right. People don't tell you life is hard. Most people say, oh, yeah, I did step one, step two, jumped over a little hurdle and boom, it all worked. No, life is hard for everybody. So we need help. We need help. So it's okay to ask for help. All right, just a quick aside. No, and I just have to repeat that, ladies, you heard it here from Shelley Archambault, ask for help. Um, but I also love that, you know, you, what I appreciate what you endured as being one of the first African-American female CEOs in Silicon Valley, but not the last, as we're training these young leaders to lean in and, and lead in the workforce. So, and thank you for sharing your story and your lessons to help them do that and the importance on networking. Um, can you talk, talk to us a little more about networking and who played a mentoring role along the way for you or any female leaders specifically that inspired you to rise to the top as you did? Oh my goodness. So those are like three different questions. So if I miss, <laughs> so if I miss one, remind me what I missed. So I'm going to start with the last one first. What women out there inspired me? You know, there were a lot of women as I was coming up that were first to do things, <clears throat> you know, Madeline Albright, right? First, you know, secretary of state, um, Mae Jameson, um, who was first black American female to go into space. I had a thing about space. Ellen Ochoa, I don't know her name, but she was the first Latina to go into space. I wanted to be a pilot secretly when I was young. So I think that's why the whole space thing. Maybe you can do that in <laughs> There you go. But, you know, it was people who basically did what they wanted to do, right? And it didn't matter that they were first. Janet Reno, who was the first U.S. Attorney General, right? So I, I enjoyed that. I really admired Anne Mulcahy, who was the CEO of Xerox. And one of the reasons I really admired her, I had the chance to meet her, but was how she actually passed the baton to another female, Ursula Burns, CEO. As far as I know, she's the only female CEO that actually built a succession plan that passed the baton to another female CEO. That takes, that's hard because you have a whole board, you've got a whole group to convince. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. So totally impressed with that. And then Ursula, who ran the company for a number of years. So those kinds of people are people that I found inspiring. With regards to the whole mentoring piece and who you know were my mentors, I will tell you, I had an experience early on in my career that really shaped how I approached mentoring. So let me tell you the story. I was at IBM. I was about six years into my career and IBM decided that they wanted their people they felt were high potential to have mentors. But they were doing it a little differently. They actually asked us who we would like our mentors to be. So I said, okay. I thought about it and picked a gentleman by the name of Roland Harris. He was a couple levels above me. I knew him. I thought he liked me. So I said, great, Roland will be good. Well, several days later, Roland calls. Shelly, 
Hey, Roland. Shelly, you put my name down to be your mentor. I'm like, well, yeah, Roland. I, I thought you liked me. And he's like, Shelly, you've got me. Go get somebody else. Mm. And that short conversation gave me two key messages that changed my entire approach to mentoring. One, this whole mentor mentee thing, it doesn't have to be formal. I didn't know Roland considered himself a mentor. So I probably had other mentors that I didn't even realize. Two, I could have as many as I wanted. He told me to go get another one. So literally, I spent the rest of my career adopting mentors all over the place. So I've had a ton of mentors. Back to help, right? Get help. These people, they've been there. They've done it, right? Go learn from them. No reason for you to start at home plate when you can talk to people, get some learnings and start on first base. So that's all part of this whole notion of ask for help, leverage the resources around you, right? To help you do what you do. And there was a first part of the question that I think I missed. I remember those second two. What was the first part, Sherry? Do you remember? Oh, well, no, we talked about networking and mentors okay. and yes. So I think it was right, the networking. So I did it. But you network to find multiple mentors, which is so brilliant and yet another less leadership lesson learned because you can learn different things from different people. Um, so that's brilliant. And, and to really, we have an exercise that we work on with our young women um, where they they establish a board of me where they are the chair of the board and then they fill in the seats around the table. And, you know, sometimes they've got the table maybe half identified and that's something that they need to work on filling in over time. But I absolutely could not agree more that, you know, you got to go out and find multiple mentors and follow up with them and make sure you're fostering that mentoring relationship. Um, you mentioned something really important about the women who inspired you. They were always women, you said, who got who went and did what they wanted to do. And I, I think it sounds like you followed in their footsteps by writing this book. Can you talk about the inspiration for, for, for writing Unapologetically Ambitious? And is, you know, is that just you wanted to do that and you, you went and did it? Talk about that process. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting, um, Sherry, because I am very goal driven. You know, I set goals and then I go after goals. But frankly, being an author wasn't an early goal of mine. I wrote the book because I've tried throughout my career to be accessible. You know, when people reach out, I, I respond. I really try hard to respond. LinkedIn, Instagram, email, phone calls. It takes a ton of time. But I've done it because I want people to know that, hey, I'm a real person. You can touch me, right? I'm down to earth. I'm here. I'm, I mean, you can be me, right? But what was happening is I got more and more responsibility. I could still respond, but I couldn't meet with everyone that wanted to pick my brain, hear the story, learn the strategies, right? All the... the and it really, really bothered me that I couldn't. So I said, you know what? I'm gonna write it down. I'm gonna write it down. When I get to phase two, I'm gonna take the time to write it down so that I can share at scale so that more people can achieve their aspirations. Because honestly, it really irritates me that so many, especially women and people of color, don't get the opportunity to contribute to even 50 or 60% of their capability, right? That's ridiculous. So I want more people to know and understand how do you take control of your career? How do you improve your odds of actually getting those opportunities so that you can truly be able to really realize your full potential? That's why I wrote the book. 
It's, it's amazing. And I love the book, as I said, and I think it should be required reading for our She Works Career Readiness Program. Um, and as I said to you offline before we joined, I think that, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris said that her mother told her, when you're the first, make sure you're not the last. And I think that's what you're doing with this book by imparting that knowledge. The leadership lessons learned are so rich and deep and, and so necessary for any young woman who's um, trying to climb up that career ladder. So thank you for encapsulating this, this tomb. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about leadership because your, your experience is so broad and deep and you serve on a number of boards. And we're going through obviously a very difficult time in the world right now with the pandemic. Um, and I just love to hear from you from a leadership standpoint, what you've observed from the companies that you're, that you're serving on the board, like what has been key to, to navigating and, and thriving through this pandemic cycle? Yeah. You know, um, a few things. So companies that have fared as well as they can um, are the companies that have focused on first, health and safety of their employees, hmm. right? Then their customers, then their business in terms of overall financials, et cetera. And honestly, with that set of priorities, they, they've done it, they've done it right. Now the key word here is focus. Notice I said, focus, focus, focus. When you're going through any kind of challenging situation, and by the way, this is true, not just for businesses, but it's true for us as individuals too. When you're going through challenging times and things are crazy and different things are coming at you, right? It's really easy to feel overwhelmed and distracted because, oh my God, I gotta do this, no this, no that, oh my God. And if you think about last year, nothing, nothing was normal last year, right? We were being thrown for a toss. Well, the key is to focus because when you focus, you can bring clarity to what it is that you're doing. You're able to better prioritize, better spend your time. You know, the analogy that I like to use is I have two four-year-old grandchildren. They're adorable, by the way. But what they'd love to do is literally stand in the middle of the room and spin around and spin around and spin around until they get dizzy and dizzy and eventually, boom, they're flat on their backs on the floor, all right? Typically giggling, but that they just find it amazing, okay? Well, contrast that with a dancer or a ballerina. They can spin and spin and spin for days. And when they're done spinning, they stop and they move gracefully on, never getting dizzy. Why? Because they focus on a focal point. Their eyes stay trained. They whip their head around right back on that point, right back on that point. And that keeps them from getting dizzy. Well, listen, in a world and at times when you have so much going on and it's chaos, that same focus will keep you centered. So focus is really important during times of challenge. Mm. I love that message. Um, so I just want to focus you, you speaking of focus, um, you mentioned just right now for the companies to navigate, they, it's health and safety of their employees first, then the customer, then the financials, which is a different order than in kind of standard business times. But I think that's also why you recently said that now is a phenomenal time for women leaders because the world is finally ready and valuing skills that women bring to the table. So can you just talk about that now? And there's been a lot of discussion and research during the pandemic. Um, we know the countries that are female-led have fared the best, um, both in fatalities and, and many other metrics. So um, 
Can you just talk about that a little bit in terms of what you meant when you said that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, women, it's interesting, the strengths that women have, and again, these are averages. That doesn't mean all women have them. It doesn't mean that none of the men have them, right? I just want to make sure we're clear. It is averages. But the strengths that on average women bring have always been referred to as soft skills, which is kind of ridiculous, but that's okay. Um, so soft skills, we are good communicators. We show empathy. We're better at teamwork and collaboration, right? All, all those things. Well, in times like these, global world, major pandemic, everything is challenged. What do employees crave? All those things. They need more communications, not less. They need to know what's going on. They need to feel part of what's happening, right? They want to be, um, indeed, they want to feel that you care about them and you have empathy, right? All those things are skills that women bring. And it actually is a filter to how we make decisions. Well, if you're making decisions where you're actually trying to optimize for people, for their lives, for safety, having empathy when you're actually making those decisions is important. And we're seeing that bared out to your point. Countries led by women are doing much better during this pandemic. Um, so the good news is, I don't think this is a blip. I think it's just the beginning of here's a new trend because the other thing that has happened and COVID has just accelerated it is even as we were becoming more far flung, more global distributed teams, those same skills I just talked about are just as important and just as valued. So yeah, I think now's a great time to be a woman in business. All right, ladies, did you hear that? That's a, that's a very encouraging message. Um, and I have just one, I have many more questions, but I'm gonna ask just one more. Um, but talking about empathy and at Live Girl, we agree that is such an essential skill. Um, part of our mission is giving people the opportunity to build authentic bridges to other people whose lives are different than their own, um, to develop empathy and to become inclusive leaders. Um, but let's talk about what's going on in our country right now with the racial reckoning. And obviously, as a trailblazing CEO, um, one of the first African-American African female CEOs in Silicon Valley, um, you have a unique perspective on this and the importance of inclusive leadership and companies prioritizing diversity. Um, can you just talk to us about that and any lessons learned or you know any encouragements um, for what we all need to know there? Mm. Well, I think the good news is most, not all, but most leaders are finally beginning to believe all of the studies. And there have been a zillion studies that all say the same thing. Diversity at any level, board, executive leadership, company, enables better results, whether it's growth, whether it is value to the shareholder, right? All of it. So now companies are like, okay, okay, okay. All right, we're, we're listening now, right? Um, so that's the good news. Bad news is many still haven't figured out, quote, how to do it, which is really kind of ridiculous. I'm just, I'm just being candid. It's really not that hard. Most companies have in place a set of expectations for managers, right? If you're a manager in a company, then you need to be able to demonstrate that you can hire talent, right? That you can retain talent, that you can actually develop and train talent, and that you can get the work done 
right through the talent on your team in a consistent and high quality way. And that you're able to create value within your team so they can be promoted because that's the idea. Companies want to build talent that can rise through the ranks to be future leaders, right? So all that's true. All you have to do if you wanna make sure that we're gonna have diversity within an organization is to say, we're gonna add an adjective to our expectations. Going forward, we expect all managers to be able to hire diverse talent, to retain diverse talent, to promote, right? Train and develop diverse talent, to be able to get work done through diverse. This is really not that hard. It's just setting the expectation. When you put it off to the side to say, okay, we're gonna run our business this way, but oh yeah, when we have an opportunity, right? When it's convenient, when it's easy, then we'll bring some diversity in. That's not gonna work. It's not gonna happen. You've gotta build it into the fabric of the organization, into the fabric of the strategy. Then you start to actually see change that will be consistent. Thank you so much for joining today's conversation. Hey, can we ask a favor? If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with a friend. And in closing, I'm Sherry. And I'm Olivia. And we hope that you feel more confident after today's episode. This week's challenge is to read Unapologetically Ambitious, the book, of course, and share with us on the podcast platform or any of Live Girl's social media platforms what you think.